Welcome, everyone. Um, today we're drinking fish eye. Fish eye. Put it up. We'll teach everyone to sign later on the Instagram, on the Patreon page. We'll <laughs> make it a boomerang, maybe? Yeah, we're going to make it a boomerang. Um, it's fucking hot. It is. It got real muggy real fast. <laughs> like, my mom told me it's supposed to cool off this week, and I'm not feeling it. No, I don't think so. I'm just not interested in the heat. I can't, I find that I sweat profusely and like, I feel like my sweat is like, it's not beads of sweat. It's full rainstorm like down the side of my face. Yeah. And it just makes me feel uncomfortable. Like the other day I just got a pair of like moisture wicking, wet, dry shorts. That's um, amazing. Oh, I was like so excited. And I got them from Threads Market, who's like one of our biggest pot supporters. Um, nice. They're a, a little boutique in Phoenixville. And I've wanted these shorts for a while because my friend Ashley, who runs Threads, her husband, Jeff, has um, the same shorts. And he always says how comfortable they are. So I put them on. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. I went to the dentist's office. <laughs> and I was pretty like drunk the night before, so I feel like... When you're drunk, like, you tend to just, like, sweat more the next day. Oh, you're my gosh. Like, Absolutely. You're just, like, sweating out everything that was in your body. And your body It's like, I don't want this. <laughs> and that's where I was like, okay. <laughs> like, I feel, like, I didn't feel that I was sweaty at the time that I was at the dentist. But when I stood up. Swamp ass. So, swampity swamp. Like, Shrek could never. Fiona would have moved out <laughs> levels of sweat. <laughs> Donkey wouldn't have even brought the dragon. Like, I was full stop, super sweaty. And luckily, like, Judy, my dental hygienist, is, like, the sweetest woman in the world. I was like, it's kind of, like, hot in here. And she mm-hmm. was like, I, it's not. And I was because <laughs> like, it, it was when I got in, it was freezing. So then I went up to, like, the checkout counter. And I stood up to, like, make my next appointment. And they're like, blah, blah, blah. Like, how much? Like, six months. And I was like, oh, yeah. And I did, like, you know the gay thing where you sort of, like... <laughs> Put your hand on the back of your hip as you're like, I don't, I don't even know how to imitate it. Like, I was like, yeah, it's like the like gay bend and snap. The gay bend and snap, but yeah. like you don't really bend. You just kind of like hunt, like hunch a little bit. Yeah. And I like yeah. put my hand up there on the counter, and I felt my ass sweat. Like, oh my god! <laughs> and I turn around and there's a waiting room full of people, and I'm just like looking at your ass, sweat. just looking at my ass sweat. And, like, of course they're not. They don't care. And it's wicking pants, so, like, who knows really how bad it is. Like, they're supposed to wick right off. Mm -hmm. Well, to wick off, they have to go all the way from the inside through to the outside and then dry out. (laughs) And that's what what my butt sweat was doing at that current moment. So I go into the bathroom after I make my appointment. And I'm, like, standing there. And I was like, let me just, like, check this out. Because I'm, like, standing, like, peeing the urinal. I look back. It's a full different shade of maroon. Oh, my God. Like I was, was going to ask what color the shorts were. They were that makes a, it worse. They're red. The, <laughs> the, the, the sweat was, was maroon. So I go to the bathroom. I, like, you know, like, wash off my face. Because now I'm sweating from just, like, the pure level of mm-hmm. embarrassment. Yep. And so I, I then I'm, like, drying my hands on, like, the little air dryer. <gasps> Do you turn around and try and dry your ass? I did. <laughs> did it work? It really worked. <laughs> They tried in like 15 <laughs> seconds. And I was just like, I feel like I just like invented a new thing that I need in my own home. Like they went from seriously soaked in a triangle down towards my like sticky thighs uh-huh. to full on dry. I walked out to the car. Jack already had the air on because he wanted to get out of there. And I was like, I can't believe that. Like that's how easy that was. I don't think that would work with like denim. No, definitely not. <laughs> 
But for like the type of material it was, I was very satisfied. And it made me very proud of my purchase. What a great plug. I know. They should have that on their website. I think so. It's a promo. Easy dry, especially with a hand dryer. <laughs> so um, welcome everyone and thank you for indulging that story. Um, I'm Paul, the host of Let's Unpack That. And I'm here with Kathleen. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast, Kathleen. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I listen all the time. And I was just saying that I often walk down the street laughing to myself listening to your podcast. So <laughs> it's very nice to be here. I'm very excited. Well, thank you for serving the ego. So um, I typically when it's someone's first time, I'll just be like, tell us everything about you. But like, where are you from? Like, let's start with that. That is a great question that I always have a very t- hard time answering because I grew up with a dad who was in the army, so I actually moved around my whole life. So when people ask where I'm from, I usually have a little existential crisis and try and come up with something really quick. Um, a small town USA, big city, like um, Hawaii. Like, uh, I've lived a lot of places. Where do you want me to be from? Uh, <laughs> where are you from? <laughs> I've probably been there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't really know how to answer that. I don't feel like I've earned the title of like, I'm from Philly yet, even though mm. I've been here since 2015. So like over four years at this point, I still feel like an imposter, even though I love the city and feel like I know it like the back of my hand. Um, so I'm from nowhere. You're from nowhere. <laughs> and I feel like, I don't know, people in Philly are pretty elitist about what it means to be mm. like from here. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I totally got into that on the last episode where I was like talking to Erica who moved here from San Diego and she had all these opinions about Philly. And we went through like a list and we're like the episode unpacking Philly frustrations or frustrations Mm. in Philly. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, we were like just talking about it. And she was like, no, I know the city. I can form an opinion on it. I can judge it. I'm basically from here. And I was like, I don't think so. I also feel like I can't, like people from Philly would not say that I could say I'm from Philly because I'm from the suburbs, even though I did four years of high school here, four years of college here, then lived here for three years after that. I feel like even those 11 years of here mm-hmm. every day, because some of it was for school, it's like, does it really, does it really count? Yeah, totally. But what brought you here? Like, what made you move here? Because it wasn't the military stuff. No, so that's the thing. And that's why I would love to call Philly like my home, because it's the first place that I pretty much decided as an adult, I want to live in this place and this is going to be my home. Mm -hmm. So I was the one that got to lay down the roots. I made all the connections for the friends that I now have, all of that. And so it feels like home for me in that way. Um, But I came here originally in 2015 for grad school um, to study international education development. So my undergrad is in education. And then I volunteered for two years after that as a teacher And that experience is what inspired me to go back to school. And Mm. so that's how I ended up in my program and and studying what I was studying. Where did you volunteer? So after college, I volunteered with an organization that sent me to Dar es Salaam, Tanzania for two years. Um, And I lived there in a community with three other people, also from the U.S., um, living in a Tanzanian community, teaching in Tanzanian schools. So I taught um, elementary school age kids grade three through seven English and um, I taught a sports class which is pretty funny if you know anything about me mm-hmm. I am not athletic <laughs> um, You're and like a solid what like five five 
Yeah, I'm like five, 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 six. Oh, all right, okay. I didn't want to say five, six, and you'd be like, no, I'm nowhere close to that. <laughs> like right in the middle, in between the two. Uh, yeah, and so I taught there for two years, and I, I love being in the classroom. It was the greatest experience. My students were amazing, but I just wanted to do something more. I felt like I could sort of affect change on a larger scale if I did something like policy work or mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. working for a nonprofit developing curriculum or, or I really was passionate about teacher professional development and working with teachers to be even better and more inspired to, to teach well in their classrooms. So that's why I ended up going to school, brought me to Philly. And I've kind of been here ever since. That's funny that you say that about teacher development. My friend, she started as a teacher, then became a teacher coach, then became a principal, mm-hmm. and then became a coach's coach of the people who coach the teachers. And so it was like each time she took that step, I think it probably felt like she was affecting change on a larger scale. Mm-hmm. But then she was like, where's my time with students too? Right. So like, how do I how do I transition then back into that classroom so you can like have both like the best of both worlds and I think she always felt like being the principal was like she always had the ability to motivate her teachers in her building and other Mm -hmm. buildings if she got to speak to them but also like every day she could greet the kids with like a hug as they walked into the building too yeah absolutely so what I I have to ask because like I don't know I like to think that I'm worldly and political but the reality (laughs) is is like I'm not so what was the community you live like what you lived in Tanzania, like was it rural or were you in like a a more of a city center? Yeah, so uh, I lived in a neighborhood that was about five miles outside of Dar es Salaam, which is not the capital um, technically anymore, but it is the largest city in Tanzania, right on the okay. east coast. Okay. Um, yeah. So about five miles outside of that, so it was much more neighborhoody in that way there are no tall buildings or anything mostly just like homes like two stories at the most kind of thing Mm -hmm. um but no paved roads in our neighborhood you know it's like a five minute walk to the closest paved road and that was the biggest one in our that went through our community Mm -hmm. um we were the only white people probably for a couple of miles at least where we were so we were very much in it um, and trying our best to sort of understand the Tanzanian experience and and really be a part of our community and get to know the people who lived around us because a lot of their kids went to the schools where we taught. Where you taught. So it was a really immersive experience in that way. But I also often struggle with the amount of privilege that we had within that. Like we lived in a house where each of us had our own bedroom. Mm -hmm. We had a wall around our compound. Mm -hmm. You know, we had a tank with water in our backyard Mm -hmm. and, and things that our neighbors literally right outside of our gate didn't have. Right. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So you're like, you're, even though you're living amongst, you can, it's like the, the person with the biggest house in the neighborhood, Mm -hmm. you know, basically. Yeah. 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 And like the family that I was closest with that lived like 30 seconds away, the four of them lived in a one bedroom that was literally their bed and a couple bookshelves and maybe a chair. Right. Yeah. All four of them. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And so that was always, I struggled with that a lot. Yeah. A lot. But I also know that, I don't know, maybe I'm placating myself with this reasoning, but I feel like our ability to live comfortably in that way and live among other American volunteers who are coming from the same culture and, you know, pretty similar views. I think we were all right out of college. Um, It gave us a safe space to sort of unpack the things that we were witnessing and experiencing. And it allowed us to dig that much deeper into it when we did go out into the community, which we 
did all the time. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know. It's a weird balance. I think so. I found the same thing with my work, like mm-hmm. in the Dominican, that we, we did get water delivered or we eventually got to the point where we collected water like from a pump up in the river and then it would bring it and it would like sort of mm-hmm. go through like a mild filtration system. But like we were separated, we were on a property, they call it, you know, the La Finca or the farm, you mm-hmm. know, and, and so that was like the total opposite experience of like what most people were going through. Like their water tanks got filled up when like the government truck came to town, like they didn't have the money right. to order additional private water, you mm-hmm. know, from somewhere else that was probably more filtered or cleaner or safer. Mm-hmm. And we did have as close to a paved road as we could, so we could get out. And it's like, what do you do? Cause like you want to be there for the volunteers who are coming down, like that where I was a supervisor on, on sites. Like, mm-hmm. so you, I wanted to be there for the volunteers, but also like with my own staff members, like we wanted to get together and reflect so that we could like to your point, unpack what the fuck was going on around us and like process our feelings because I don't know, it's like pretty difficult. It seemed for some of our staff members who lived in the town as direct neighbors to like ever get away. And I think strategically about what the organization could do Mm -hmm. because like they're surrounded and they're totally immersed and they could listen to those people and tell those stories back to us. But I think they didn't even have time to like, like breathe because like if right. someone got sick they would go over to the american's house like if somebody was out of food they'd go over to the american's house so like mm-hmm. even when they were off of work they were so immersed that like that time never really went away right. and i don't I, I think that's like it's like a privilege thing but it's also just like you need those volunteers to do that to bring people closer to the community mm-hmm. like you have to be neighbors but right. also like if you don't have in a nonprofit organization like a board who can like bring you back to reality yeah. <laughs> or like other staff members who don't have that. It's easy to, I think like feel so a part of that culture that you don't know how to necessarily bring the organization forward, which is crazy because you have the most like raw and real experience. So right. I don't know. It was something that you were not to totally pivot, you know, but something that you were just saying as like, um, you were talking of like feeling more privileged, feeling like an outsider and being like, you know, even though you're, you felt a little bit like an outsider because it was like, here we are with our walls around our yeah. compound. You Don't know? have to worry about where my next meal is coming from or the clothes no. on my back or the shoes on my feet or I get to go home in two years. I can burn myself out because I know that there's a time, a limit. time limit. Yeah. You know, so yeah. I can put a thousand percent into what I'm doing right. and yeah. know that I'm going to have some relief at the end of my commitment. Yeah. And, and that's not the reality for my coworkers or, you know, anyone else that I came in contact with and formed relationships with. So, and doesn't that change your mental state so much when you have a time limit? It does. Like imagine if you knew that your poverty was temporary, right? <laughs> like, like no one ever has that. No one has that luxury, whether it be in the States or whether it be in somewhere as like far away as Tanzania from yeah. here, like, or even, you know, like most people are not like, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to be able to bounce back from this. Mm-hmm. Like I'm going to be able to get out of this. I think mm-hmm. it's, very much feels like the opposite. It can feel like a trap. So like, what is the point of being motivated for change? Like when you feel trapped, like that's what, whenever we've talked to people in Dominican, it's like, well, like this is just sort of the way things are. And I'm like, yes, but if you all only eat fruit, you will get diabetes and like you will, you know, struggle from health issues because of it. If you're constantly frying everything in oil, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it, but it's like, yeah, but like, what else are we supposed to do? It's like, Oh, like check yourself, you know, of just like, I know that like I can get access to these things and Mm -hmm. I know that these things exist. I know that these things are 
like part of part of my daily experience and in three months I'm going to be flying home from here so like yeah that's my motivation to put a thousand percent but like right. people are in poverty it's probably really hard to get over the mental hurdle of poverty and put a thousand percent into any gig absolutely and I don't think I mean at least in my conversations with my friends and my coworkers, like there isn't this ignorance to that idea of like, okay, like I'm in poverty and that's never going to change. And I don't think that there's anything better. Like people hope for a lot, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. and they, they, I don't know. I hate when people are like, oh, they're, they're poor, but they're so happy. I think that's like, I hate that. So (laughs) that's so much. And I'm, so I'm trying to like choose my words carefully. I just, people are constantly working hard to make their lives better given the circumstances that they're in. Yes. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like it's not like I accept. Right. I accept that this is my situation and it can't change, so I'm going to be thrilled about it. Right. That's like, not how it is. No, I mean, I've never met yeah, I've like never they're... met harder working people than my coworkers mm-hmm. at the school where I was teaching. I mean, mm-hmm. I've never seen such a dedicated group of people who truly created a family out of this place with all of these wonderful children and it just mm-hmm. was like a great source of joy for me in a lot of ways. I could talk about it forever. Um, well, what was it like to transition back? So two years. Oh know? my gosh. Like I, I know you and I have talked about it a little bit before, mm-hmm. but like, what was it like to sort of take your, your mind, your brain, your, your mind and brain, same fucking thing, <laughs> your, your brain, your body, like all of your five senses just to get dropped back to Philly. I, not Philly, I hadn't come to Philly yet, so I didn't really know what I was going to do when I got back. I just knew I needed to get back. I got back the second week of December, so I was like, okay, we have Christmas, which is going to be like a shock in and of Mm -hmm. itself, and I want to see family, and I think I want to go to grad school, but I'm not sure yet. There's a lot of things to consider. And so I flew back with one of the girls that I was living with. Um, We both flew back to New York because she lives about 15 minutes away from my grandmother, who was the first person I wanted to see when I got off the plane. Of of course. um, As you know. (laughs) And so my mom picked me up with my grandmother and we went back to her house and I spent a couple days there with her, my mom and my brother, Daniel. And I actually, it's funny, I was telling this story to my sister-in-law the other day Um, about two or three days after I got back, my brother, um, wanted me to go to this concert with him because his friend is a musician and he was opening for some like big act, not that far away. Mm -hmm. So he's like, this is a sibling bonding thing we can do. Like (laughs) we haven't seen each other. You know, he and he and my family visited about seven months before I got home, which was Mm -hmm. amazing. Um, but we hadn't seen each other. Like, let's do this great thing. And we went to this concert and we like got through his friend doing the opening and we're just like sitting there. And then the guy comes on and he's singing. I think he's singing like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and some like rock rendition. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. I start bawling. Yeah. Not even related to the song, not related to this person. I just realized that I am in yeah. such a different world than I had been immersed in for the whole two years. I didn't leave I, I mean, I left Tanzania, but I didn't leave the continent of Africa. I didn't for leave East years. Africa for two Shit. years. And one of the first things I do is go to a Christmas concert <laughs> where there's beer and I cry. Yeah. Yeah. So that sort of wraps up the, the um. whole coming home experience. Um, <laughs> it was such a weird adjustment because even, 
even the way that I spoke English with my friends in Tanzania is very different from the way obviously that I speak here. And mm-hmm. so there are like certain terms or mm-hmm. phrases or things like that, that I would try to use that in America, people were like, I don't know what you're saying. What are you even touching? Like, yeah. yeah. Like, I don't know what that is. Um, uh-uh. one of the first mornings and like cust- like customary type things too. So one morning I was sitting in my grandmother's kitchen eating breakfast. It was like a single waffle on a plate and she had plumbers come in to work on the kitchen sink. And they like come in, they come into the kitchen and I was like, oh, welcome to breakfast. And they were like, what? (laughs) It's like, that's just, that's what you do when someone comes into a, like, if you have something, if you have food food or water or whatever, like you welcome everybody to it. And mostly it's a formality. People rarely ever actually like take what you're giving them unless they need it and they're hungry. It's but part of, part of the culture. But yeah. It's just like, you just offer it. And huh. they were kind of like, who are you? And what are you talking about? You have a single waffle on your plate. Yeah. It's like, it doesn't matter how small it is. You offer someone food when they come in the room. But I'm eating. Yeah. And I'm eating and you're yeah. in the, in the space and you're a guest in this home. I think that's funny. Like I, I, I think about, um, my aunt's husband, Jerry, um, and his like, philosophy on people he hires to work on his home like Mm -hmm. so um he's pretty trained in like the landscape arts um and he's pretty talented in terms of construction um they have like a four acre property or some shit though so it's massive so he can't do it all by himself Mm -hmm. um he comes from puerto rico so when he hires other guys who might be mexican dominican or you know from puerto rico Mm -hmm. um he makes sure that he gets them like food while he's mm. while they're working on his property, um, and I think that that's like it's a really interesting thing because like I used to help them with their property, but I thought it was just because I was family that they would like get primos. My aunt mm. would make iced tea and mm-hmm. lemonade, come out with like a cocktail at four. Um, and then I noticed that Jerry totally does the same thing. Like Mm. he takes everybody's order. Like Mm -hmm. he makes sure that there's cold drinks. Um, he like makes sure that if they, if they want, there's like a drink or a beer at the end of the day. Now he makes sure they're working their ass off because he's paying them. Of course. But it's like thinking about that of bringing a plumber into your space. Like, I don't know. We just hired movers as I talked about, you know, in our, our cohabitation episode, mm-hmm. we hired movers and I was like, do you guys want water? You know, like, do you want like snacks? Do you want, like, I was like, well, I, I don't, we don't have much, you know, like we just got here. Right. Um, and they were like, no, no, like, that's totally cool. Like we're, we're just working. And then I got them. Um, like I just like went to Wawa and got like, uh, like two big ass sandwiches, mm-hmm. like one Turkey, one Italian, two big ass iced teas, two bottles of water and like two bags of chips. And then they didn't touch it until they were done. Hmm. And I was like, I don't, I don't know that I got that necessarily from the Dominican, but like I might've, because when we were working in building homes down there, um, which is a whole nother podcast episode, um, <laughs> when we were working in building homes down there, the people in the community would like give us whatever they had. They'd pick mm-hmm. coconuts from the tree and then we took a coconut break. You know, they would fry up plantains after lunch and then we would eat that. And like, I know it was a little bit different because it was not for profit work, but mm. even still like for the for profit work of like, I don't know, somebody coming into your home, why wouldn't you offer them something? Right. Like that's like totally. a a weird American thing, I think, where it's like, well, we're already paying you. And I, I know we have a lot of Brit, uh, uh, British listeners, and I feel like they would probably do the same thing. Like, you're not going to give your 
your plumber a, a snack or something right. like you're not going to give your electrician like you might offer them water or something right. to drink but like like they get a paycheck why should i give them my food right and what it's most like, people might because well, they're like here and who knows if they packed a lunch right. you know like and what is twenty dollars on top of the four hundred dollar ceiling fan exactly. you just got yeah so totally. i just like i find that really interesting that that was like something that happened to you after you transitioned back home i don't know i I think about my transition back home after just three months and like Mm -hmm. I went to the Jersey Shore and it was like arguments of who's cooking dinner tonight do we have enough beer go run here go run there and I don't look that as like a oh wow the poor people in the Dominican were so much happier than this but it was like wow we're really getting stressed about like who's cooking dinner tonight Mm -hmm. when like there's other places in the world that it's not even necessarily about that. It's just like, we're just going to eat here because they're the ones like with the food tonight or they're, mm-hmm. we're just going over here. It's so less like planned and rigid. Yeah. And I don't know if Tanzania has a similar culture. It's weird to compare something like the continent of Africa to like the island of Hispaniola. But like, I don't know. I've just noticed that that, that is a significant difference from America, the two things mm-hmm. that we were just sort of saying. And maybe there's there's parts of America where that does reign true. I don't think the Northeast America is a good example of that. I would agree. Yeah. yeah. And I th- I just think, I think it speaks to, at least in, in my experience, in my very small community in Tanzania where I lived, it was, everything was so much more focused on people and community than splitting up chores or, you know, any of that kind of stuff. Um, it just you were just happy to see other people, people Mm -hmm. that you loved. Mm -hmm. If I walked into my neighbor's home and I was like, just wanted to stop by and say, hey, (laughs) I would be there for three hours and we would have a whole meal. Sit down. We're going to have coffee. We're going to have, yeah. I wasn't going to cook tonight, but now here we are with this giant thing of rice. Like, let's get into it. Yeah. And it wasn't even a thing. I didn't go in there with those expectations. Mm -hmm. I honestly was just going to stop by and say hi. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't happen. If someone comes to you and you see someone that you love and care about, you want to spend time with them. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that revolves around feeding them because that's a way that you can show love and community. Yeah. And those are the types of things that I've really brought back with me. Yeah. For sure. And I've had like made such a difference in my life and the way I interact with people and view the world. I don't know. I could go on with cliche, cliche after cliche, but I, I just... As much as I said earlier, I struggle a lot with being privileged in that space and volunteering for two years. I always say it's the most selfish thing I've done, even though everyone thinks it's selfless. Mm-hmm. I think it's very selfish. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I sort of like counterbalance that with the fact that I think I invested not just in what I was doing, but in the people that were around me. And that... I, that is like, I feel very confident in that part of my experience because I still have relationships with these people. Yeah, I haven't lived yeah. there in five years and uh-huh. I still keep in touch with the people that I was closest with. Mm-hmm. And so that sort of like, again, maybe I'm placating and I'm just trying to make myself feel better and not guilty about the whole thing. But I, I wasn't there to just like do work to make myself feel good about myself. I have these friendships that I know are going to last forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Regardless of whenever the next time you go back there is. Yeah. 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 I think that's like just such an interesting thing to unpack about nonprofit work. Um, because my nonprofit work started as self-serving. 
Mm-hmm. And I didn't, of course I didn't know that. I was fucking 20 or mm-hmm. 19 or 20, mm-hmm. you know, and I applied because I was like, mm, cool place to do my spring break, whatever, you know, like Dominican Republic, sure, I'll go there. Um, and I've talked about that like a little bit on this podcast before, but not a ton because I think to your point, people will just be like, wow, you're such a great person for doing that work. I roll my eyes at that all the time. I was like, you know, you know what a mean teacher I was sometimes. I had to lay down the law. Like I'm, I did not feel good about those days when I was short tempered. Like I was not a good person for two full years. Are you kidding me? And I, I mean, there were, there were times where I was working in the Dominican where um, I don't think I was necessarily the best version of myself. Mm -hmm. Like you don't bring the best version of you anywhere. No. And Mine was interesting because I felt connected to the community. And mine was a little bit different. I wasn't holding a position in a classroom. I was overseeing Mm -hmm. American volunteers. But, like, I found that even just with people in the community who I didn't know or didn't speak the type of Dominican Spanish that I could understand, Mm -hmm. or even going into, like, the city versus the rural areas, I reverted back to, like, the conservative part of me. And I say that not as a political term, but as a as a as a personality trait mm-hmm. of being conservative mm-hmm. um and being like oh i'm in the city now and like these people are a little bit more intense so like i don't know how to speak to them and i'm like that's my fucking like privilege manifesting itself in a dominican city where i'm working with dominicans absorbed in their culture and, and living with them mm-hmm. but i would just be like oh well it's like the city so it's a little bit different it's less safe here and like I don't think that that's true at all. There's still, you know, like I I think back to it now, but like, you know, I revert back to those behaviors of just like looking the other way when someone makes eye contact with you in a city environment, like Mm -hmm. whether they be white, brown or black, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm just like, well, I'm in the city, so I'm just not going to take part in the Dominican culture. When like, if you go to into the Dominican culture, you sit at a restaurant, the people are no different, you know, than than the rural communities. I think there's there's sometimes a little bit more of a sense of community in the mm-hmm. rural environments because those people are all family, you know, right. and, and, and right. then there's a little bit more sense of like the friendship type community mm-hmm. in, in the city environments, but there's still mixes of both. Um, but I think it was just like sort of what I, what I told myself in, in my head. And I, I just like all of that BS about, you know, like, Oh, you're, you're just such a good person. I'm so proud of you. It's like, I don't want to, f- I, I roll my eyes internally because I don't want to fault those people for being like, I wish I could do things like you did. Like, I know that's what they're saying, but they'd be mm-hmm. like, you're such a good person. Like you're such, how do you make time for this? Or how do you, I'm like, anyone can make time for this. Yeah. Like, and anybody can, because it, my service totally started as self-serving. Mm-hmm. Like, 21 year old idiot going down in the Dominican and then realizing like it was totally a fucking transformative experience that I needed to go back for me yeah and the relationships I made with the Mm -hmm. Dominican people not the work that I wanted to do there I didn't want to go back for that I wanted to go back to feel that feeling again of feeling like true humanity and raw emotion because language I think strips away a lot of those things you don't think about what to say because you're just trying to connect with them in their Mm -hmm. language and you're sort of like just your actions are 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 truly what speak more than words and again cliche like i feel (laughs) like we're hitting them but i feel like they make sense cliche cliche i know like it's it's truly right yeah (laughs) like it take a shot every time um but i i truly do feel it's like a a kind of a 
like when you don't have the the connection of language and Tanzania pretty much everyone is fluent in Swahili yeah okay I was like because yeah. I like when I was in Kenya it was like mm-hmm. everyone was speaking English and I was yeah. like this is what not like I knew it because I did the research there but I was like but like Tanzania I know they don't speak this so I'm like what the fuck you know like, yeah. I was like but yeah. they're but it's because like oh well duh because they're different countries and like mm-hmm. the states are just so big I think sometimes that you're like what do you mean like we all speak the same language here we all like know English roughly here or like a lot of us do um, you know, for, for those of us who have been in an American school system, most of us speak English. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, I was like, oh, Kenya and Tanzania are connected at a border and they don't speak the same language. <laughs> I'm like, I'm such an idiot. Like the Dominican and Haiti don't, but it was just right. like, oh, I'm going to Africa. And I hate when people say that. Can I interrupt <laughs> yeah, you right please, now? Please, when people are like, yeah, yeah. people are like, oh yeah, how was Africa? I'd be like, I don't know how Africa was, but where I lived in Tanzania <laughs> was great. Yeah. Um, also like when the town are like, that I lived, the yeah. country that I lived in, the culture yeah. I was surrounded by were great. Right, right. Africa is Africa, more diverse I don't know. There's than, like 54 yeah. countries there so I'm really not sure let yeah. me check check in and get back yeah. to you I know um, it's like oh let me like well I'm, yeah Egypt like I yeah like there's every like opposite end of yeah. culture you know yeah. in those in that continent right like, well, well, versus the, North America is pretty similar culture with the exception of like Mexico and sorry mm-hmm. to our low Canadian audience <laughs> that one person yeah there actually uh, is there's one <laughs> listener in Canada <laughs> It might have been my friend who just crossed the border for a week, you know, but just listened, yeah. Well um, the funny thing is is like Kenya actually does speak Swahili, so their mm-hmm. languages are English and Swahili, but they prominently speak English and their Swahili is very different than Tanzania. Whereas mm-hmm. in Tanzania it's like everyone speaks the more standard Swahili and Kenyans speak more of like a slang, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, they always say like Tanzanians speak proper Swahili. Um, That's like Spain and, speak proper Spanish yeah. and Dominicans speak some version right. of exactly. farmer. Right. <laughs> and then like the school where I was teaching was English medium. So the only class they had in Swahili was Swahili as a subject. So at least like mm-hmm. at school, mm-hmm. I was able to communicate with everyone, just about everybody in English, all my students and everything. Um, which definitely helped. It would have been much more challenging the other way. But I mean, by and large, I like had to learn Swahili and like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I remember the first couple of days I was there, I stayed with my host family. um, And one of the first meals they served me was like a fried fish. And I will eat just about anything, but I do not like seafood. Mm-hmm. And so they like put this fish in front of me and my host mom, who speaks almost no English. Did it still have the head? Um, like, it did. It like full. it was like a yeah. full, like, yeah. yeah, you had to like cut it open, scrape oh, yeah. the scales off kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. um, my host mom doesn't speak a lot of English. And so I turned to my host sister and I was like, I'm so sorry, but I just like, I I don't like fish. Like, I'm not going to eat it. Like, what do I do? I, we had already sort of like chatted and gotten to know each mm-hmm. other. So I was comfortable with her. And I was like, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't want to offend your mom, but I like, this is just something, it's just, it, it would be more offensive if I try to eat it. Let's just put it that way. Mm-hmm. Cause I just really don't like fish. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she was just like, Oh, like whatever. And she just told her mom, like, they're all very blunt. They just like tell each other everything. Oh, and I was huh. like, so embarrassed. Huh. And then her mom just in Swahili goes, you don't like fish? And then she just starts laughing. And then to like, (laughs) I went back, I had the opportunity to visit actually twice since I left my volunteer time. And the last time I was there, um, 
<laughs> I was meeting her at her her little shop where she works, and she's like, "Let's get lunch." And she was like, do you want fish? And then she just starts <laughs> giggling, yeah. giggling to no end. This is uh-huh. like three, four years like after the initial uh-huh. incident. And yeah. it's just stuff like that where I was like, okay, this is like, I've created this relationship. We bond. know each other. We have the, we have an inside joke. Like, uh-huh. I just, I don't know. It just, I felt so at home in that moment. And like, that is what... Like what you were saying is where, you know, I went back for the feeling, right? I didn't go Mm -hmm. back because of the work that I was doing, but I kept going back because of the feeling that Mm -hmm. I had and the people I surrounded myself with. And Mm -hmm. it's like moments like that where I realized that that was the case. But it was a journey to get there. Oh, for sure. Because when I left and knowing that I was going to be... You're not just talking about the airplane. Yeah, you're right. (laughs) Right. Those 8,000 miles are nothing. Um, (laughs) Like when I left initially... I was like, okay, I have a background in teaching. Like Tanzanian schools are obviously going to be very different. There's still going to be challenges, but I have sort of this foundation in my back pocket, like a little bit of confidence. If I'm a good teacher, that means I'm successful and it's going to be a great two years and like no worries. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Not that I was like that confident, but I did have a big kick in the ass from humility coming my way because I got there and I like, I was so serious all the time. I just wanted to do well. I wanted to get through all my lessons and the 40 minutes that I had. And if I didn't, I felt like a failure. Like I was so focused on the work and being in the classroom with my students. Are you saying in Tanzania? In Tanzania. You felt that way? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Sorry, and so I, 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 yeah. I totally lost sight of pretty much everybody else that made that school the community that it was. I didn't really have relationships with my coworkers. I didn't know the non-teaching staff like at all, especially because a lot of them only spoke Swahili. Um, And I struggled my whole first year because I was so focused on the work and being perfect in that and putting so much energy into that that I, again, didn't form any of these relationships. I didn't have time to go out in my community and meet people and the families in our neighborhood and all this stuff. And then Mm -hmm. something happened at the end of my first year I went to the beach with some of my community and one of the teachers from my school who I wasn't sure how I felt about him at the time, just based on some of his comments. But the more I got to know him and the way he was with the students and the other teachers, I was like, okay, I think this is someone that I can like confide in. And we had this conversation on the beach one day, just the two of us. And he was like, you are too serious. You need to like chill out. You have another year. Let's make it a good one. I'm going to hold you accountable. Like, just have fun. And it was a totally different second year because of that experience. And I, of course, still cared about my students achieving well and being successful in school and forming them as whole people and all that good stuff. But I started spending my lunch hour in the kitchen with the non-teaching staff learning how to cook these giant 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 pots of rice and beans uh-huh, yeah, so just like yeah. spend all my time in there yeah. and talking to my coworkers in the staff room and not always you know head in the books marking papers whatever and at the end of the year right before i left everyone was like you transformed that's they're so like cool. i never saw you smile until the second year and now like you're like my sister. Huh. And it, I was like, thank God yeah. for that conversation and for that person who should not have had that much faith in me based on like our previous interactions. Right. Right. Not that there was anything contentious, but we like didn't have a relationship. And he was just like, 
I see something in you and you just have to be willing to like let go and let it be. And I, from that moment on, it became all about the relationships and it literally changed my experience. It was wild. That, I could like cry talking about it. I know. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, okay. As, as someone who struggles with anxiety and, and the, the point of, you know, wanting to be organized, wanting things to be perfect, mm-hmm. sometimes being so serious that you can disrupt or destroy a mm-hmm. relationship. Um, I get that. Like my, my team members just had to grab me recently because I was too stressed at our trade show out in Las Vegas. And they were like, hey, remember that like everyone is a person and, mm-hmm. and people have emotions. And sometimes your desire for perfection mm-hmm. leads to stress, mm-hmm. which makes people feel as if they're not doing the right things. And I was like, I, I, I get that, but that's hard for me to process because I am a perfectionist. Yeah. And you were taught how to teach a certain way and you mm-hmm. wanted to get through your lessons plan, lesson plans. You wanted it to be impactful for your students when like, the reality is, is if you just paused a little, mm-hmm. imagine what you could see, experience, or unpack in the relationships with the other people. And then you had that. Right. Do and that just made me yeah. a better teacher because they had the knowledge and the insight that I didn't have being Tanzanian or Kenyan right. or, you know, working in similar education systems that I had no experience in. Yeah. And so it did end up serving me in the long run in all of the ways. Yeah. Imagine if I had opened myself up to that when I first got there. Yeah. But like hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah, but do you attribute that to you being American? Do you attribute that to you being you? Do you attribute that to like a, a military background? Like where, where do you think some of that comes from? And sorry if that's personal, you can say it's it's too personal. <laughs> no, I've had enough line for that. Yeah, um, I know, yeah. I, I think it's me because I had another volunteer in my community who had been there for a year already. Um, so it sort of like overlaps. Two people come, two go, and two stay. Got it. So you okay. sort of like, yeah. every com- the community is new every year, but there's someone who's been there for a year before you to sort of like show you the way. And the person who was my second year teaching in the same school is a very laid back, very open, very relationship oriented person just naturally. Mm-hmm. Like, little anxiety just very able to put herself out there extrovert all that good stuff um and i i think she thrived even though she didn't have a teaching background she thrived as a whole in the experience because of her ability to just let people in sort of immediately which is not how i am it takes me a while to sort of feel someone out and then i'm anxious about Mm -hmm. how people are perceiving me and Mm -hmm. what i should or shouldn't be doing and even more so in a culture that's not my own i'm that much more like like, you know yeah um so yeah i think i think it's me i think it's my anxiety my desire for perfection and being good at what i do and i i don't know maybe i put pressure on myself to be the best because I did have this education background and so the expectations perhaps were different. Mm-hmm. At least maybe I was mm-hmm. perceiving it that way. Whether mm-hmm. or not it was true, I don't know. Yeah, I know. Um, yeah. Isn't but, that funny? Yeah. Yeah, and then I think a lot of my previous service experiences had also been very, like, uh, like hands-on or like 
product driven, mm-hmm. right? So like building f- a home, right, building exactly. a school, yep. building a church. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I have a complex with all building the, shit. All the building. Yeah. Well, I, that's I just thing. that that's the shit that you know my service is like totally trying to be the opposite of, mm-hmm. but we're constantly fighting this like give thing. Exactly. So, yeah. I I think about this all the time because the first international service service experience I ever had. My freshman year, after my freshman year of college, I went to El Salvador to help build a library. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All Enter the books. building here. Yeah. <laughs> and um, all the books they told me. <laughs> all the books that were not in a language that they could read. Uh, about a culture of which they are not a part. Um, not contextual at all. And so... <laughs> oh, and so, so like the 1976... 19, or seven. Whoop, the 1776 yeah. like American Revolution <laughs> yeah. to like a child in El Salvador is not relevant. I no, never would not, have thought. Not that. so much. Um, <laughs> and so like that was my first experience. And I remember on that trip, that's when I learned actually about the organization that I ended up volunteering with. Oh, cool. And cool. Yeah. like I just I'd only traveled outside of the States one time before that this was my first introduction really to the idea of social justice and, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, analyzing what that means and what that looks like and trying to, to, um, you know, I don't know, work towards that in whatever, whatever way that looks. Um, and I thought it was the greatest week of my life Mm -hmm. and I thought we did really good work Mm -hmm. and I felt really good about myself at the end of the whole thing. And Mm -hmm. then, a couple of years later, after my senior year, I ran, I was a leader for the same kind of trip um, that I had done. It was through the same program at my university. But this particular service in Guyana was actually people-centered. And mm-hmm. so it was more mm-hmm. about ministry of presence than anything else. And mm-hmm. we weren't building anything. We weren't feeding anyone. We weren't, you know, donating our old crap that they don't need, you right. know, that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. It was very much just sitting with people and hearing their stories and learning about their experiences. And I had such a hard time with that. Not, not leaving doing. them with something yeah. or, or building them. With, I, I, well, yeah. Yeah. Not, not doing something for exactly. them. Exactly. Yeah. And that I, was tangible mm-hmm. in nature. And I, it took me a long time to understand the significance of that and the relationships, yeah, you know, and yeah, the thing that really got to me the most was just the length. I mean, we were there for seven days and then we left and I never saw these people again. So mm-hmm. you talk about the importance of relationship and seven days isn't going to do it. And so I was so jaded at that point, but I was already dedicated and committed and signed to go to Tanzania. Right. So it's like, yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh. The fuck? What am I doing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, You're like, fuck, this service shit is going to be hard. Yeah. yeah. Like, this is not what I want. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. But so it was, it was really interesting having sort of those two dichotomous experiences, both labeled as service, like the, you know, the building one and then the ministry presence one, and then going into Tanzania and being like, what am I supposed to do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not this like giving thing. The importance of the relationship is essential. And mm-hmm. then you were probably almost frozen for part of your first right, year in Tanzania, right. jaded by that experience. Right. And then like it took you to like wake back up to like mm-hmm. that reality of a tough conversation with somebody, you know. And I don't know if that trivial like it makes it trivial, like what I was just saying or what you mm-hmm. wanted to explain. But, you know, like it, it if that helps you get back. Yeah, to I were gonna say. So yeah. what I, w- I was going to say was that I... I'm often very critical, more so of those 
first two experiences because they were so short. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And like, you know, what good is that? But the thing is that I wouldn't have ended up in Tanzania if I hadn't had those experiences. And yeah. like, I don't yeah. know, like what is more worth it? Me doing this potentially harmful seven day thing that like turns into a half built building that nobody ever finishes and is full of books that nobody's going to read. Like, and that's why I think that that kind of service is so selfish is that it like all it probably did at the end of the day, nothing in El Salvador that I did mattered except that at the end of the day, it helped me get sort of on this path. I felt good, but then it also got me on this path toward basically where the rest of my life has gone because I went right from undergrad into that service program right from that into my master's um, and then right from that into this like really wonderful stable job that allowed me to travel back to parts of East Africa and yeah. do the kind of work that I was interested in. And it it was this beautiful, perfect trajectory, but I always feel guilty about where it, How started. it started. I know. It's I, so weird. I completely identify with that, like on probably one of the deepest like fibers of who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, because I know that I would never have worked with my friends to create a nonprofit if I never had the house building experience before. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, it was through that trial and error of going down four times, <laughs> twice as a staff member, mm-hmm. preaching that experience to other people about the value of their work. And I think about all of these people that I met, probably a hundred people per summer, American mm-hmm. volunteers. So that's 200 people plus the school trips that I, it was probably honestly in like f- the four hundreds yeah. of people that I impacted and talked about the value of the home and what they were giving for other people. Mm-hmm. And by the end of it, I just didn't fucking believe it anymore. Yeah. Um, because totally. that is so real. <laughs> So real. so real. I, I, I uh, because I, I and, and, and I don't want to share this story because it violates probably like a, a, a personal experience and, and someone's personal experience mm-hmm. um, of what home building did to them. But I'll use it just as an example without using names. Um, because my first summer there, I built a home for a Haitian family in the Dominican. And mm-hmm. if you're not familiar um, with Haiti, to those of you who listen, um, listeners TM, I have to slide <laughs> that in somewhere. Um, if you're not familiar, uh, the Haiti, the, the Haitians and the Dominicans have a very tumultuous relationship. Um, the easiest way to compare it, I would say, is how Trump voters feel about Mexicans coming across mm. the border, invading their lands, um, and that the Haitians are taking the Dominicans' jobs, even though those aren't the jobs that they want. And this is not a podcast on illegal immigration, though I would love to talk about it at some point um, for any of you who are interested. But um, I built this home for this Haitian family, and both the husband, the wife, and the kids were all full, 100% Haitian, had you know illegally immigrated into the country. Um, but had found a place working at the school, supporting the community. The dad did deliveries, you know, of people he would drive to a, a shore community or a coastal community, fish, and then bring back the fish and then sell them to people in the mm-hmm. community. Hardworking, beautiful, amazing people who um, I can't visit anymore mm. um, because the year after we built the home for them, they got divorced. And 
I don't think that the home is what made them get Mm. divorced. Mm -hmm. But I do think that there is a piece of service work um, through things I've read, things I've done research on, and other people's experience, like to what you were just speaking to, um, that once you don't have to worry about shelter, you start to think about other things. Um, Once you don't have to think about providing for your family maybe food or as much money as you needed because there was less of a goal when the goal was shelter. Mm -hmm. Um, Your mind can start to wander and you can look at your relationship probably in a different way because a home drastically changes a human being. Mm. And I think it drastically changes your perspective on life. Um, And it can be a good thing. It can be a harmful thing. But when there's no journey up to buying a home or building a home or just like, you know, finding a way like you and your wife worked your asses off together and and were able to build this for your kids so that, you know, they could use this after you were gone. Like, I think just to be like, you don't have shelter. Boom. Here's your shelter. I think that there's like without proper guidelines, I think your life can go haywire because Mm. it's such a drastic change from getting rained on every time it rains to like the time that it doesn't. And for people who know me very well and know my political beliefs, that can sound very conservative and very Republican. Like you gotta pull yourself up by your bootstraps and work your ass (laughs) off and get your home. And that is like so not what I'm saying because like there's nuances in social justice work. But I, I just think that like to go from not having a house to having a house and then like that worry change is just like... For people who have done service, they can feel that part. And there's so many examples, um, specifically in the Dominican, like people who I presumed when I was doing the work for them had great relationships. I'd find mm-hmm. out years later, because I've been doing work there now for 10 years, mm-hmm. that after they got the home, like the man would abuse the woman or mm. the man would abuse one of the children um, or the husband would cheat on the man and find someone else. Um, and like... Do I think that that is because of the home? No. But do I think that there's probably a connection there? Yes. And so it's like very hard for me to speak about because I know that I would not be working with a community right now to build a local community pharmacy with them, not for them, Mm -hmm. um, if I didn't go through this experience first. Because those failures, I view them as failures, even though most people say that's why I'm such a good person. those experiences are the only reason why I think that I can look at service a little bit more objectively mm. now and know that I'm like doing the right things now. Um, although we've still fucked up, <laughs> but like it's a, it's a journey now and I can yeah. look back and be like, remember, this is what we don't want to be. Mm-hmm. And this is who we should be because through the research books, like toxic charity, charity detox, when helping hurts, I'm plugging all of these for those of you who are interested in learning about nonprofit workers starting a nonprofit organization. It helped me at least know, like, here's what the good experience, here's what good service looks like. Here's Mm -hmm. what just service looks like Mm -hmm. versus here's what handouts and destroying a community can look like, you know? Um, You create, like, winners and losers. And I'm sure my parents are like, if they're listening to us, which they aren't, they're like, yeah, winners are losers. You know, like that's not, that's not what I'm trying to say. Um, Cause like systemic poverty in the United States is very different from like 
poverty in the Dominican Republic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just like, when you said that, I feel like I had to go on a tangent that I will surely cut down a little bit. Um, <laughs> Cause it's an interesting piece of nonprofit work. So you feel that guilt as you were just describing, mm-hmm. you feel that guilt of, I did these things just for me and yeah. didn't even care about the causes. Like yeah. I built a church that like, who the fuck knows if they wanted that. Right. Maybe like what they really needed was like access to jobs to get them out of poverty. Maybe they needed English lessons so that they could get jobs in tourism. Like there's mm-hmm. so many other exit were like a pharmacy like that is sustained, like self-sustaining and is, is run by the community and is like led by the community and then is training people in the community to like think more consciously about their Mm -hmm. health. Like there's so many examples of just and sustainable service that I'm just like, what the fuck was I doing? Just like going down there with no experience and slapping a house on in front of Mm -hmm. other people. Mm -hmm. So like, I think about that a lot. All the time. But I I don't know how to, how to, like button that up of like a, this is how I feel because I just accept it as like the failures of my past allowed me to be a better you know service minded mm-hmm. person moving mm-hmm. forward. Um, and the fact that you're constantly doing that analysis while continuing to be committed to the work you're doing. I mean, you said you've been doing this nonprofit stuff for a decade. That mm-hmm. I think there's something to be said for the growth and the development and sort of the evolution that has happened both in your own thought. And I would assume that that would then carry into the way that the nonprofit work, you know, Mm -hmm. works and you, you sharing these ideas about what you're learning and experiencing and seeing, and hopefully it does continue to be this sustainable, more just community driven thing more and more and more. I -hmm. mean, I, I, I think we should all be trying to like drive ourselves out of, having to do any kind of service, you know, mm-hmm. like, I, isn't, isn't the goal for nonprofits not to exist? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Like I say that all the time, like our vision is X, but really our vision is to never have to be here again. Yeah. You know, or right. come down to visit, <laughs> like not to come down and, and work with people. Yeah. And, but then that always little begs the question of like, who am I to ever, to have ever been here in the first place? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like that is yeah. where the selfish part comes in, uh-huh. right? Yeah. Like why me? Like yeah, like Yeah, why? I mean I honestly yeah. I would be lying if I said that part of the reason I did JVC wasn't because I didn't know what I wanted to do after college. Mm-hmm. It's like I know I like to mm-hmm. travel, I know I like service. Like, Yay, social justice. Yeah. Uh, two years, I don't have to think about anything cool. Right, uh, yeah. That would yeah. be great. Yeah. Um, but if you don't have that attitude, like I'm sure there are some people listening to it that are like, I wish I had that fucking attitude. Who knows what I lo- would have learned about myself and then hmm. what I went on to change. Like, you know, if you didn't have that, just like, well, I love this, so let me try it. Like that still is like a great part about you, you know, <laughs> that you took that risk. Even though it's like, you took it for maybe what some would say is a selfish reason. Yeah. I, don't, I, don't I mean, it's like I don't regret it at all. It, fuck. It, yeah. <laughs> we could go in circles all day about yeah. it. Like, I don't. People re- have tuned out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do not regret those two years. I don't think I would have done them any differently. I think I did grow a lot as a person, and that definitely changed over the two years I was mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I feel like that's almost all I can ask for really and it an experience yeah, that, it, like helped it, you grow it yeah. did but and yeah. that sounds so selfish and i hate that and i like cringe when i think about it yeah. but i i but don't know but there is the I real relationship know. that you mentioned and i think yeah. that that's 
smart-minded services about the relationships. And so Robert Lupton wrote that book, um, Toxic Charity, I was talking about, and then the sequel, Charity Detox. And in it, he talks about the importance of being the neighbor. Mm -hmm. Like, if you were to want to help North Philly get out of the state that it's in, because you're a person with maybe more financial resources than some of those people have and maybe more connections to the government or the criminal justice system. Like Mm -hmm. you have to go and live in that community to truly experience what their needs are. And of course you're going to go through a development process during that time too. Sure. Yeah. But like you're doing it for the right reasons. Like I know I'm going to learn a fuck ton, but also like, like the community requires that I live here first so I can truly be a neighbor Hmm. and I can think like them. I can act like them, but maybe I look at things a little bit differently because of the privileged upbringing I had Mm -hmm. or just the not as tough upbringing that they had. So he, he talks about that as like his method for sustainable service. And he has like a whole eight tenants on sustainable service or, or community minded focused development service. Um, and it starts with just being there and you have to be there to truly understand the problem. Yeah. So it's like, does that make you feel great about every single day you spent in Tanzania? Probably not, but you were probably taking the only steps that you could have at that point in time where your mind was, you know? Yeah. And I, there came a point where I had to recognize that if I'd never gone there, things would have been just fine. Like I didn't change the world. I didn't do anything. Like my students would have had another wonderful Mm -hmm. teacher. They would have Mm -hmm. had other people that they could look to. Mm -hmm. You know, I tried to form relationships with them because I cared about them very much and I felt very close to them, but I'm not the only one they could have done that with. A Tanzanian or a Kenyan or a Ugandan, mm-hmm. just like all my other coworkers, could have easily done easily my job done it, yeah. and probably done it better. Let's be <laughs> yeah. quite honest. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And so there Dominicans are way point... better at building homes than I <laughs> yeah. ever was. So there just comes this point where you're like, okay, I am here and I want to know and understand and be a part of this community and form these relationships. But like, I'm not changing anyone's world, and that's like almost kind of liberating. Mm-hmm. In it's a not sense. On... Yeah. It's as simple as you said. Yeah. So, I don't know. I feel a lot of guilt about being the white person in Africa. Um, no. <laughs> in big Tanzania. Country. The big country of <laughs> oh Africa. Yeah. I have heard people call Africa a country. Oh. Um, oh. And I don't know. I, I don't regret it, but I do feel this like weird guilt. But I think at the end of the day, the best thing I can do is like interact with other people who are interested in doing this kind of work and giving them the reality of it. Mm-hmm. All of the stuff that mm-hmm. we're talking about right mm-hmm. now. And mm-hmm. just telling them that you're not going to save the world, nor should you expect to. And you're mm-hmm. not that important. And um, some people will forget about you. Yeah. Like when you go back and visit, some people will forget your name. It, totally. And like that's because they went on living their lives. And exactly. life did not stop when you left Tanzania. Exactly. Life does not stop when I leave the Dominican. And yeah. as much as that was like a realization for me like Mm -hmm. that's only happened recently like did i actually think that they were stopping and waiting for me to come back like no where's paul but did i yeah right like he hasn't been here in 36 days like no that's the guilt that i put on myself yeah um that i can't be there as much as i would want to be but like the reality is life goes on and that was a Mm -hmm. humbling experience for Mm -hmm. us when we came back recently and we had been away for a year and the community had another partner come in and that partner was like oh 
there's a pharmacy that we could help you with that. And they mm-hmm. were like, okay. You know, cause yeah. like, like that's, it's how, Im- like, yes, our relationships are important, but is it the relationships or the work that we're doing? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like it's, it has to be both. Yeah. And it, it has is. to be a frequent touch because like people in poverty are going to try to find, they're motivated to find their way out. Mm-hmm. So any willing person who wants to help even a little bit is mm-hmm. always going to be welcome yeah. because they probably know, especially if you're white, that you have different resources or a different perspective or like, not better, a different perspective mm-hmm. or, mm-hmm. you know, different connections, you know, that, that they might not have. Like, but the coolest thing for us has been able to like, connect our American donors with our Dominican donors mm-hmm. and like our people in the Dominican who are like our healthcare administrators and our professionals who teach us about healthcare. We're like, we need to bring down some fucking doctors so all these smart people can talk. Like that's that's all our role needs to be in yeah. this work is facilitation mm-hmm. of like group work because social justice is important, but unfortunately they can't, they don't have the resources to get themselves out of there. Right. But again, it's like, every nonprofit should like not want to exist anymore. Yeah. You know, like yeah. that, that should really be the goal. And I, I feel like we could transition to, you know, how other people, like people who are service minded, but maybe want to get involved. Like what are some of those steps? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you're talking about talking to people, just asking questions, just like right. being aware, being mindful. Cause like, I think a lot of people who I work with in the corporate world are like, I don't know how I ended up here. At least it's paying my bills. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's certainly more things I'm passionate about than this. And I don't say that as in they don't love their jobs, but just that they're like, what else can I do with my time Yeah, that is socially responsible? Because the easiest thing is to pay $5,000 and go on a trip to the Dominican and build a home for a family in need. That is the easiest baseline service that you mm-hmm. can do. If you want a, a place that a, an experience that's immersive, mm-hmm. totally. But if you want something that actually contributes to sustainable change, like I think it's all about education before you decide even where you want to put your money. And that could be again if you mm-hmm. just want to make a straight donation, or if you want to get fully involved, like on the ground, and you give know, like, like your time and yeah, all that. yeah, yeah. And, and I, as an educator, yeah, like what what would you recommend? Right. You know, for you people know, to educate themselves on. What I have realized in all of my time and. Through my my time in Tanzania and then in grad school, which was very much international education work focused, and we spoke a lot about working for nonprofits and for profit companies and and government organizations and that kind of thing. And I and more so than that, talking about like context and the importance of being educated before you act in any sort of way. What I've come away with from that, ironically, in a program fi- focused on international work is that the best thing for me to do is work within the culture and the community that is my own. Mm-hmm. Because that is where I have the most institutional mm-hmm. knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so I've hmm. taken a total shift from everything I did for like four or five years from volunteering to my first real job, which was all international, and said, you know what? I think I need to like <clears throat> think more locally yeah, and yeah. get involved in in the things I'm passionate about here that are right around the corner from where I live literally and (laughs) you know the same sort of overarching issues that I find anywhere else in the world exist here just as much especially in education especially Mm -hmm. in Philly education Mm -hmm. and so I'm starting to take the steps to figure out what it means to make an impact on a really small scale but just because it's a small scale doesn't mean it's 
not just as impactful. Yeah. And so like even yeah. my mom has challenged me. I eventually want to open a nonprofit one day. Um, which will be a bakery in the front, but the ideas that I'm Let's do giving, it tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, the ideas that I'm giving an opportunity to young people who have been failed by the education system or can't or don't want to go to college, give them hard skills in an industry, in the culinary industry, but also teach them soft skills like collaboration and effective communication and problem solving and all these things that are not explicitly taught in school, which is such a shame. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I can probably employ five or six of them at a time, which seems like such a small impact. But the thing is that if I bring that to a community that needs that, and I have people who are passionate and want to learn those things and are able to take them with them and go and teach other people or even just succeed on their own and, support themselves or whoever it is leaders in their own community exactly it's it's so like fundamental grassroots level organization and that is where the biggest impact is going to come policy change is it important of course but does it always or most of the time translate to actual action (laughs) almost never never. and i was very much on the track of going towards like that policy change or those big overarching ideas and it just I think the best thing I can do based on all of my experiences and knowledge and places I've been and things I've seen is to work right where I am. Mm -hmm. That's the most sustainable. That's the biggest impact. But we'll see what happens. Yeah. Well, (laughs) I, I, but I think that's, that's like, that's the right approach. Um, And I say that as someone who is involved in international service, the reason Mm -hmm. that we, named ourselves on the wave is because la onda in Spanish means ripple. Mm. And what you're talking about is a grassroots ripple effect Mm -hmm. within the community of training a few, training the leaders who can then influence much more effectively than you ever could. Absolutely. Because they speak their same language. Mm -hmm. Even if that language is English, they Mm -hmm. speak their culture and they can translate that message probably way more effective than you can. So you're helping to work with leaders to create leaders to train leaders so that they can coach other people which is exactly what you said like you were debating doing of like i want to coach other teachers you know like we were talking in the very beginning about this so a little first full circle moment (laughs) we don't often get that on the let's unpack that podcast um but i think that that is like totally an admirable and really cool approach so where can people follow that journey? Where's your Where's your plug? Like, I know you didn't come on here to plug. But. I definitely did not. Yeah. <laughs> uh, didn't know how we got here. But uh, I, so you can follow me on Facebook and Instagram as The Joyful Baker. Um, that is my baking social media account. Um, and I'm also on Etsy if you're interested in actually buying anything. Oh, I didn't know that. I am. I'll give him a card. You can hand it out. (laughs) Are you the Joyful Baker on Etsy? I am. I am. I'm the Joyful Baker across all platforms for now. Um, Eventually, just for like consistency's sake, but I do have a very special, exciting name for the bakery one day when it opens, which I know you will love, but that might be a different podcast because it's named after my grandmother. Oh, that's (laughs) such a good segue. Oh, that's awesome. Well, Kathleen, thank you so much for joining us. Of course. It was Um, such a pleasure to be here. I love unpacking this kind of stuff, especially my service experience. Yes. I loved hearing about yours. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, thank you. Um, I appreciate you asking, and I appreciate you sharing, because um, it's not an easy thing to talk about. And I also think it's a hard thing for people who might not be involved in service to fully understand. So I just encourage people to ask us questions. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have a question for Kathleen, obviously, the Joyful Baker, or you can find her lurking on the Let's Unpack That underscore podcast Instagram account. Um, but send in your questions. And, and, you know, I've been getting a lot of good feedback from the questions that we've been asking on Instagram. And we went from like 88 followers the other day to 130 wow, by all these videos. That's amazing. I know it's like, it's kind of crazy to go to do that in a week. Like, get it girl. Um, and so like we, we've noticed that just through posting like videos on our social media pages mm-hmm. and asking questions, like it seems silly for me to not know how to do that as a trained marketer. <laughs> but, um, I think sometimes in your passion work, you have to like, forget you have to you have to realize what you you know learned and how that plays into it so um we'll ask more questions about service you know once this episode comes out which will be a week from now the night that we're recording and of Um, course let's just make it clear that i'm no expert and this is still my experience (laughs) that even after four years i'm still unpacking and i'm certainly not like the know-it-all be-all of social justice and I'm sure I said some things I'm gonna cringe when I hear them back but I I am trying very hard to like understand my experience and really continue to unpack it Mm -hmm. yeah well thank you so for those of us who if it's your first time listening or you bitches who haven't followed us on social media yet um, get on that yeah you can follow us on Instagram at let's unpack that underscore podcast I'm currently trying to buy a new URL let's unpack that there's some like 12 year old girl who owns it somewhere in Florida. Um, Buy her out. And yeah, or you can email us with questions if you don't feel like posting on a public platform um, at let's unpack that pod at gmail.com. Amazing. Um, thank you, Kathleen. Thank you for joining us. All of you, thank you for listening. And we will talk to you again soon. <laughs> I don't know what that is. <laughs>